You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Thank you to the Rural Alberta Advantage for the great intro music and welcome to the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast. I'm your host, Rick Cole. Each week, we take a trip down memory lane, back 50 years, and I report on all the hockey and sporting news that was taking place during that time period. In this episode, we're looking at the week of February 22nd to 28th, 1971. This podcast has been made possible by the support of our two great sponsors. Newspapers.com is the world's largest online newspaper archive. And without their support, none of this could even happen. Uh, they've been crucial to all the research that we do to bring you the news from uh, back 50 years ago. We're also sponsored by the Breakwall Brewing Company, which is located in beautiful downtown Port Colborne, Ontario, just steps from the Welland Canal and Lake Erie. The folks at the Breakwall produce some of the best craft beers in southern Ontario, and in my opinion, they've got the best pub food on the entire planet. When things open up again, I would love to meet any of our loyal listeners for a beer and a burger or a pizza at the Breakwall. For those of you who may be new to us or, or haven't seen what we do before, uh, we do this podcast every week. We do special episodes and we also have a daily Twitter account at Hockey 50 Years where we report on the hockey news from that day 50 years ago. Now, if you've heard what we do and you like uh, what we put out there, I would encourage you to help us out by going to patreon.com slash hockey 50 years and subscribing to this podcast. What you get as a subscriber is actually pretty, pretty neat. You get early access to each week's Friday podcast. We put it a couple days early plus several times a month we give some special bonus content to the subscribers that you won't hear anywhere else these include uh, stories on players a deep dive into the subjects of the day in both sports and maybe some world events and a lot of other unique content that you uh, just won't get anywhere we have a, a series coming up on uh, darkness with Harkness with Ned Harkness in Detroit it's proving to be a, a bigger job than I ever thought it was and we're going to look at how the media treated the death of Terry Sawchuk. So uh, patreon.com slash hockey 50 years is where you can go to uh, subscribe to this great podcast and we thank you for your support those of you who already have. We also have a little bit of uh, other personal news this week I guess you could call it. 
The 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast has agreed to accept an invitation to join the Hockey Podcast Network. While it won't make much of a difference to you, dear listeners, it would grow our audience, we think, and make it a little more of a worldwide endeavor. And uh, anytime we can spread the word, we're, we're always happy to do that. The Hockey Podcast Network hosts right now over 50 podcasts dedicated strictly to hockey. Uh, They have just general podcasts. Uh, Ours is going to be, I think, the first hockey history one that they're going to do, but they also have podcasts covering just about every team you can find. The Hockey Podcast Network can be found at www.thehockeypodcastnetwork.com. Last week, like so many weeks in this 1970-71 season, it was a busy news week. We did give you a profile of the Maple Leaf legend George Armstrong, which was written 50 years ago last week by the great Red Burnett of the Toronto Star. We also took a look at the Quebec Pee Wee International Hockey Tournament as it was in 1971, and we learned how the Higgins goalie masks were made from Ernie Higgins himself, as there was a great feature in several newspapers 50 years ago last week. This week, we'll talk about the news first with highlighted games to follow, and here's some of the main stories we have for you this time around. We're going to talk about the present Leafs captain in 1971. After talking about George Armstrong last week, Dave Keon is the subject of a feature we have this time around. Gordy Howe is sent to Florida by the Detroit Red Wings allegedly for arrest. But as we would find out later in the week, there was probably a lot more to this story than originally met the eye. And we have some veterans on the move in the National Hockey League as the trading market in 1970-71 heats up once again. So let's get to the news and notes right off the bat here. And the first item that caught our eye as the week began was that there may be no Memorial Cup playoffs, which is emblematic of junior hockey supremacy in Canada, in 1971. The Canadian press reported that a national final in junior hockey was unlikely this season, according to the vice president of the Canadian Amateur Hockey Association, a fellow by the name of Joe Kriska. Joe said that despite pressure from the CAHA and the National Hockey League, the first-level junior leagues in Ontario and Quebec have simply refused to play the Western representatives. The West each year is represented by the Western Canada Hockey League, which allows five players on each of their teams to play who are over the age limit set by the CAHA and observed by the Ontario Hockey Association Junior A Series and the Quebec Junior Hockey League. Kriska said the Eastern teams are refusing to compete in the final because of the overage players and who could blame them, a whole extra year of experience and growth for these 21-year-olds who will be playing against 20-year-olds. The regulations may be changed requiring them to compete in future years whether they need it or not, according to Kriska. So they're going to put the Ontario and Quebec leagues at a disadvantage, and I don't know why they gave the Western teams this uh, uh, 
break, I guess you could call it, when really there was there was no reason for it. There were plenty of leagues, especially the Central Hockey League, which was mainly a development league and stipulated that you had to have the majority of players on each team less than 24 years old. The Canadian Amateur Hockey Association uh, is going to have its annual meeting in May at Thunder Bay, Ontario, and could make it mandatory that if they're going to receive development money from the National Hockey League, they must compete in the national final. Presently, this year, the Memorial Cup is held by the Montreal Junior Canadiens. Kriska says that the Memorial Cup is a challenge trophy, and if a club challenges the team that happens to have it at the time, but that team refuses to meet the challenge, then the Memorial Cup must be given up. Kriska says it has happened in the past, but he did not cite any cases that this actually took place. Now, you remember I just mentioned that development money from the National Hockey League becomes involved in this. So once again, money rears its ugly head in amateur hockey. Well, professional hockey, it's all the time. What they're getting at here is the Memorial Cup final makes a lot of money for some old white men. And that's why the Memorial Cup has to go. This isn't about junior hockey supremacy. It's about making sure that somebody is making some cash off these unpaid junior players. Supposedly unpaid junior players. Okay, here's a story I'd been waiting to see for years, and in 1971, I finally got to read it. Michelle Plass, who was a goalie for the aforementioned Central Hockey League Kansas City Blues, became the first recorded professional goalkeeper to score a goal in the past week. Michelle got a puck in his own zone and shot at the length of the ice into an empty net during a game against the Oklahoma City Blazers. The Blazers, of course, had pulled their goalkeeper in an effort to tie the score with Kansas City leading 2-1 with about a minute left in the game, as was customary at the time. With 44 seconds left, Plass's marker gave Kansas City the insurance it needed to claim a 3-1 victory. Marcel Pelche, he is the director of player personnel for the Philadelphia Flyers, accompanied the team on their trip to Oakland and uh, Los Angeles from Vancouver this week. And during the uh, pregame activities for their game at Oakland, a reporter asked Marcel, who's always quick with a quip, why Bruce Gamble, recently acquired from the Maple Leafs, was starting in goal instead of number one man, Doug Favell. Pelche's reply was, there ain't enough people in the stands here for us to play, Doug Favell. Toronto Maple Leafs had a few days off at the beginning this week after playing, I think it was four games and five nights in a really hectic part of their schedule. And so the team said they were going to take the the players on a secret getaway for some, quote, rest and relaxation at an undisclosed location. Well, of course, you can't keep the intrepid newsmen who follow the Maple Leafs down. And uh, they did discover where the Toronto team went to rest. This was very important to Toronto newsmen, probably because 
they wanted to follow the team wherever they were going. It was discovered that the team stopped off for a few days in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. Why would they stay there? Well, they were uh, put up at the Playboy Club Hotel at Lake Geneva. The Geneva Playboy Club is known for its outstanding skiing facilities, its plush accommodations, and also for being the home of Cynthia Hall, who happens to be this month's February Playmate of the Month in Playboy magazine. And I'm sure the boys had a good time and uh, took in some good skiing, I'm sure. We learned on Monday that Gordy Howe had been sent home from New York to Detroit. Uh, he didn't play in the Sunday evening game against the Rangers with what was suspected at the time, or at least reported at the time, as a bad case of the flu. Gordy had played the Wings' previous game in Buffalo, but for now, for some reason, he wasn't able to go. On Monday, the Red Wings sent Gordy a little further south than Detroit. Now this starts off all pretty innocently according to the story by Jack Barry of the Detroit Free Press and you know we quote Jack a lot. He was one of the best hockey reporters around during those days. Jack writes say what you want about Bruce Norris but the Chicago millionaire was some boss Monday to Gordy Howe. He ordered the ailing Red Wing superstar to Florida for a week's vacation. Gordy didn't waste any time. He and his wife Colleen tossed their bathing suits in their suitcases and they were gone on an afternoon flight down to Sun Country. Norris told reporters that uh, Howe was sent south to, quote, properly recuperate from a wrist injury that's been bothering him since last year and a bad case of the flu. The wrist has pained him all season, as we mentioned, and the flu knocked him out of Sunday's 4-1 loss to New York, which ended Detroit's three-game winning streak. Norris said that Howe would remain in Florida for a week and then meet with the club doctors to, quote, again, decide on his return. And that sounds rather ominous. So if Gordy stays in Florida for a week, he's going to miss three games. It's possible he might not return until March 6th when the Red Wings host the Rangers again. And that would take him out of four games. Although the influenza was the final straw, uh, Gordy's had a particularly painful season. He had trouble with the wrist all last year. He fell out of the top five in scoring race to ninth last season for the first time in 21 seasons. And really, how many players have even played 21 NHL seasons? Well, Gordy underwent surgery last May at the University of Michigan where bone fragments were removed from that painful wrist. But that didn't apparently correct the problem and Gordy's wrist would swell after each game he played this this year. It got so uh, bad that he became a one-handed player for many of his games, rarely even putting his left hand on the stick because of discomfort. Well, that might be a little bit of a stretch because Gordy was still uh, at the 20 goal mark uh, just about by this time of the season and he was uh, taking shots on goal one-handed or not so according to Jack Barry and Jack's very accurate the pain had grown more intense over the last three weeks 
but Gordy continued to play through it. It was just like him to have one of his best nights of the season on Saturday when he led the club with six shots on goal. He set up three goals, scored the tying goal with just over four minutes to play in the game. The flu was setting in, but Howe still accompanied the team on its midnight charter to New York. But he was still so ill that coach Doug Barkley ordered him to fly back to Detroit on Sunday morning. Being sent to Florida for a vacation is not unprecedented in the Red Wings' recent history. Uh, Gordy is, though, the first Red Wing sent south during the season since goalie Roger Crozier was dispatched for some R&R in 1966. And just two weeks ago, General Manager Ned Harkness offered to send club captain Alex Delvecchio and his wife Teresa on a holiday to the south, uh, although it wasn't really specified at the time, but Alex turned that one down. Well, the story wasn't quite over right there. Later on in the week, the Detroit News reported that there is a reason to believe that the playing days of Gordie Howe might be over. The 42-year-old Howe, according to the report in the Detroit News, in his 25th NHL season, left the team abruptly on Sunday and is reportedly on vacation with his wife in Florida. They obviously didn't read Jack Barry's report. The Detroit News said they have attempted to contact Howe for the uh, six days since he had left. This was now later in the week. And they weren't able to get a hold of either Gordy or his wife, but they were able to trace him to Fort Lauderdale, but there they said the trail went cold. GM Ned Harkness and coach Doug Barkley, according to the, the Detroit News, said that they have been quoted as saying Gordy was upset before his departure. Barkley uh, said it could be that for the first time in over 20 years, Gordy's not among the top five scorers in the league. What is he now? 33rd or something among league scorers? Gordy is proud. His wrist is also bothering him. And Barkley says, I think Gordy is down on himself. So as this tumultuous week for Gordy Howe was coming to an end, various news outlets tried to contact Gordy in Florida, but no one seemed to be able to find him. What had started out as a routine for the Red Wings in-season break for one of their star players was now turning into something of a circus, par for the course in Detroit in this season. Uh, even on Sunday, the Wings admitted that Howe's trip to Florida now was Gordy's idea, not the brainchild of owner Bruce Norris, as Norris himself had claimed. Gordy was apparently upset at the ridiculous manner in which the Red Wings front office is being operated these days, and really, who could blame them? Lots more to this story, and uh, stay tuned, we'll have more as things develop in the coming weeks. On Tuesday, the first trade of the week occurred as the Chicago Blackhawks and Minnesota North Stars hooked up in a two-for-one swap. The Blackhawks sent veteran 37-year-old Doug Moans, who, by the way, is capable of playing either defense or left wing. Remember, he was a left wing on the famed scooter line with Stan McKeat and Kenny Warren. Well, they traded Doug Moans and a young forward by the name of Terry Caffrey, who's 22, to the North Stars. And in exchange, they pick up 25-year-old center Danny O'Shea. That deal took place in the morning and would end up being the first of a couple moves announced 
by Minnesota General Manager Ren Blair. Doug Moans was reported to be uh, very upset by the deal uh, when he was informed by General Manager Tommy Ivan. Tommy Ivan told newspaper reporters, Doug's a pretty good competitor, competitor and he's been around a long time. Now, don't get me wrong. He's no different than anybody else who's been traded away from a first-place team. It was tough on our part to tell Doug about the trade. He's been a loyal, cooperative and he's helped us. Ivan said that Doug has played pretty well everywhere on the ice except goal for the Blackhawks. And he said, I assume the North Stars want Moans for the stretch drive to make the playoff. We need a center with Lou Angotti and Pitt Martin both being hurt. And Danny O'Shea will move right in and take up the slack. Ivan was also asked about young Terry Caffrey, and he said that Caffrey actually turned pro last year. He played junior hockey in Toronto. The Blackhawks kept him for the first week of the schedule during last season and then sent him down to Dallas where he uh, blew out a knee and apparently needed surgery. Uh, he's a really good prospect, good playmaker, very good team man, and Terry Caffrey should have a good future in the NHL with the Minnesota North Stars. The 25-year-old Danny O'Shea was really happy to be going from Minnesota to a first-place club in Chicago, but you know, he also expressed some sadness at being moved from the North Stars. Danny said, I enjoyed playing here immensely. He went on to say that he would have liked to have finished his career with Minnesota because because uh, the, the seasons he played there were very happy time. But Danny says, you have to turn the page and start elsewhere. I thought I had a good season, but maybe Ren Blair and Jackie Gordon can answer the question about why I've been traded. It will, however, be a lucrative change with the Blackhawks, who are a favorite to be in the Stanley Cup Finals. Later that afternoon, the North Stars were at it again in the trade market, this time finally making good on Ren Blair's threat to deal away forward Tommy Williams. Tommy, as you know, had fallen out of favor with coach Jackie Gordon, who wanted to rule the North Stars, much like Blair had done when he was coach, that is to say, with an iron fist. Williams... 30 years old now, was dispatched to the hockey equivalent of Siberia, the California Golden Seals. Although I suppose you could say Detroit could compete for the distinction of hockey Siberia these days as well. Going to the Seals was not a preferred destination among National Hockey League players. Along with Williams, going was a player who was not named at the time, said to be named later, and in return... The North Stars received the Oakland, or sorry, California Golden Seals captain, 34-year-old Teddy Hampson, who's been around, it seems, forever. Hampson, very popular figure with the uh, Seals team, actually seemed to enjoy his, his life in the Bay Area, although he struggled mightily this year, and so did the team. Uh, he was reported, just like Doug Moans, at upset at being traded, but then again, who in their right mind would want to move from California to Minnesota in February? Here's what Ted told John Porter of the Oakland Tribune. Ted says, it's been a frustrating season here for everybody. The whole team wanted to win and we were really trying hard, but we just couldn't get it rolling. Ted said he had no bitterness. Coach Fred Glover had treated him just fine. He was just sorry to leave so many 
good friends. Ted owns a home in San Leandro and he's got three children. Uh, Ted said it really uproots your life in just a couple of minutes when you find out you've been traded. It would have been easier in the off season, but I'm sure I'll get over it. Now this is trade related news, but this is not a trade that took took place this week, although it only came uh, to be known in the last few days, the end of last week and this week. It's a result of the big deal made uh, just a little over a week ago between the St. Louis Blues and Detroit Red Wings. Uh, that's uh, Red Berenson and Tim Ecclestone go to Detroit in exchange for Gary Unger and Wayne Connolly in one of the more celebrated deals of this 70-71 season. Carl Brewer was one of the assets that was given to the St. Louis Blues in that trade. But strangely enough, nobody announced that part of the deal at the time it was made public. Brewer, you remember, was credited along with Gary Unger as making the Red Red Wings a playoff team in the 69-70 season. But he refused to play for Detroit this year, probably because he understood exactly what Ned Harkness was all about and he didn't want to play for the man and that was a wise decision. So his rights were included in the deal by Harkness who just figured Brewer was never going to play for him at all anyway why not try and get something for him Boom, Scotty Bowman the Blues general manager asked the Brewer be included Harkness didn't even ask for anything else he just threw him in anyway Carl needed a week or so to a few days anyway to get in shape and he uh, played well in regular duty in his first game which was Wednesday night against the Penguins in Pittsburgh the Blues and the Penguins played to a five-all tie and Carl Brewer defenseman even scored a goal in that first game for the Blues. As I was growing up, and of course a hockey nerd following, and one of the, the records in the NHL that really fascinated me was uh, one that had been set in 1952. I was a year old then. A fellow by the name of Bill Mosienko, playing for the Chicago Blackhawks, had scored three goals in 21 seconds. And watching hockey growing I, I couldn't figure out how anybody could beat an NHL goalie three times in 21 seconds. Well, this week on Thursday night, the Boston Bruins broke that record in an 8-3 win over the Vancouver Canucks at Boston Garden when they scored three times in just 20 seconds. The Bruins, who had been held to a two-all tie over two periods by some spectacular play by uh, Vancouver Canucks netminder Dunk Wilson, set the two-team scoring marks during a wild splurge in the third period, which saw John Busick, Ed Westfall, and Ted Green each score a goal. The 22nd spree wiped out the 19-year-old record set by Bill Mosienko when he scored those three in 21 seconds in 1952 against the New York Rangers. While it's not the best audio quality, we do have some sound from the Boston Bruins broadcast during that three-goal onslaught, and I thought it was pretty interesting, and we'll include it here. February 25th, 1971 when the threesome of John Busick, Ed Westfall, and Ted Green scored the three quickest goals in an NHL game, 20 seconds apart. He's got it. McKenzie, right across in front. Five! And the Miller takes a 3-2 lead. And it only took them seven seconds on the power play to score. 
Don, I think that goal may go to McKenzie. I'll have to wait and see on it, but Jostic hammered it in, or hammered it what looked like by uh, Wilson, but I don't think it went across the line, and McKenzie tucked it in as everybody just stood there and watched. There's Busick. There's the stop by uh, Wilson. You'll see the puck right by the goal, right there now, on the corner, just on the line. There's Green. Shot, stop. Another shot. his 20th goal of the year, Eddie Westfall with number 20. Here he is right there, screen, getting the shot away on a great rush. And here's Stan, uh, Westfall with the open net. He fires it by Wilson. In case you're wondering what happened there at the end of that date, the two Boston announcers were so busy talking about Westfall's second goal that they just didn't even realize Ted Green was getting a chance to score the third one, and they just shouted about the being 5-2 to two when Ted scored the goal. They were as shocked as everyone else in Boston Garden. One of the reasons for the 1970-71 renaissance of the Toronto Maple Leafs was their captain, Davey Keon. The Toronto Globe and Mail's fine hockey reporter, Dan Proudfoot, uh, profiled the Leafs leader this week. And he wrote, Dave Keon seldom rates mention when folks get down to serious discussion of the Toronto Maple Leafs' heady surge to a playoff spot in the National Hockey League's Eastern Division. But the 30-year-old has already set a National Hockey League record this season for shorthanded goals, and there's little doubt now that he is shooting for his third Lady Bing Trophy. Still, Keon, the wiry team captain, is forgotten while the contributions of newcomer Jacques Planer, Bobby Bond are discussed in full by pundits around Toronto. It is an injustice caused mainly by the fact that Keon has been doing much the same thing for 11 years in the NHL. His playmaking, puck handling, and checking have become accepted as a daily stake might be by a beef connoisseur. It happens every night. So it's no wonder that very few notice that Keon is doing virtually everything just a little bit better than ever before. On the weekend, he scored his 33rd goal, and that's the most ever for him in an NHL season. His 62 points at this point in the year equals his previous best total and 18 games of the current season remain to be played where he can add to his own personal mark. Coach Johnny McClellan says Keon has to be the Lady Bing Trophy winner this year in the NHL. McClellan says how many penalties in minutes does he have? John has the answer, two. And he says I remember that penalty and it never should have even been called on him. We can't tell you the rest of what Johnny McClellan told Dan Proudfoot because he subsided into a series of minor profanities describing the referee's error in judgment in penalizing the Leafs captain. Dave Keon's opponents explained that he didn't have to take penalties because of his superlative skills. He uses angles instead of resorting to fouls or muscle and his thinking works whether he is making passes, handling bigger opponents in the corners, or skating strategically while killing a penalty. 
Dave is one of these guys who has what we used to call back then superior puck sense. He knew how to play the game, and that separates the best from the pretenders. Dave's made some headlines this year, and that's probably because he has scored eight shorthanded goals for the Leafs. The previous record was held by a fellow by the name of Jerry Tapazzini, and he scored seven in the 1958 season with the Boston Bruins, the lowly at that time Boston Bruins. In fact, Tapazzini's performance that year was one of their few bright spots. As is typical of Dave, he denied any consciousness of closing in on that record. He said he'd not be doing his job if he thought of scoring while killing penalties. Dave says, my job is to prevent them from scoring. If I got a chance on a goal, fine, I'm going to take it. Dave does have one major opponent to winning the Lady Bing Trophy this year, and that is Boston Bruins left winger Johnny Busick. Johnny has 37 goals and 44 assists, but he has double the penalty minutes of Dave Keon, but that's still a pretty good mark. Johnny's only served four minutes playing for the big bad Boston Bruins, and that's a pretty impressive record in itself. We mentioned that if Dave wins a Lady Bing trophy, this would be his third. He won the trophy previously back in 1962 and 1963 when he scored 61 and 56 points respectively. Each season, he spent only two minutes in the penalty box, just like this year so far. Alex Del Vecchio, in case you were wondering, is the only active player who has won the Bing Trophy three times. But former Leaf and Red Wing Leonard Red Kelly won it four times. And the amazing thing about Red Kelly winning the Lady Bing Trophy four times is that three of those times he played the entire season as a defenseman. That was when he was with Detroit. But that four uh, trophy record is not the best mark ever attained when we're talking about Lady Bing in the NHL. Frank Boucher of the New York Rangers, he was practically uh, went steady with Lady Bing between 1928 and 1935 when he won that award seven times. One of the reasons may be because Frank was such a gifted and clean player but the other reason may be because in 1928 to 35, there weren't that many clean hockey players. It was a different, rough, uncompromising world back in the late 20s and early 30s in the NHL. We did want to get into a couple of uh, game highlights. We'd missed them the last couple of weeks because of the overwhelming amount of news. And so we got a couple for you this week. Uh, the first one we're going to talk about is a rare National Hockey League Monday night game, which was played in Vancouver between the Canucks and the Montreal Canadiens. And the Vancouver Suns' Bob Dunn helped us out with the story. Offensively, the Canucks scored two goals by 7.31 of the first period of the Monday night game. Defensively, they didn't allow Montreal Canadiens their first shot on goal until 5.28 and their second until 11.02. 
Their seventh shot by Montreal never took place until the second period. The fans of Pacific Coliseum, of course, were in ecstasy. Six nights earlier, of course, the Boston Bruins had been the victims of the Canucks in what was undoubtedly one of the biggest upsets of the entire 1970-71 National Hockey League season. Why not beat the Canadians as well? The Canucks seemingly were on a roll. They were waiting for the lightning to strike again, said Canadians coach Al McNeil. Well, it wasn't quite the uh, upset win over the Bruins for the Canuck fans, but they had to be happy with a three-all tie with the team that we would find out much later would be this year's Stanley Cup champions. Hate to give you spoilers, folks, but uh, those of you who know this is 50 years ago, you can look it up. The lightning did strike only this time. It struck the Canucks. This was another night that the same Canucks had roared to a 2-0 lead over the same Canadians, but that was for before John Ferguson threw a punch or two, striking fear into the hearts of the first-year Canucks. On that particular night, the Canadians scored seven times, the Canucks only once, but Monday night, this would not be the same result. Ferguson sort of restrained himself until 624 of the second period and then he tattooed Ted Taylor's forehead with enough punches to open a wound that required stitches. As a result of this uh, one-sided bout, Ferguson spent five minutes in the penalty box. Taylor served his five minutes getting sewn up in the Vancouver dressing room. At that point in the game, the Canucks were leading 2 nothing. That's when it changed. After that, Canadians scored three times. The Canucks just once. And, of course, that was the tie. Taylor was asked after the game just uh, what happened. And he said, I just went in there to grab Fergie. And then the scuffle started. Actually, what happened was a a, a minor bout had begun between uh, a wrestling match between Terry Harper and Vancouver's Mike Corrigan. And they also got majors, by the way, for just a bunch of wrestling. But it was only moments before the Ferguson-Taylor battle that uh, that became the main event. Despite the comeback, the Canadians were anything but happy with the tie. Canucks came out flying in this game. In fact, they came at the Canadians in waves, uh, usually like the Canadians usually do to their opponents. Uh, Taylor poked Pat Quinn's shot past goalie Rogi Vashon in the first minute of the game, and then Andre Boudreaux fooled Vashon with a quick wrist shot in the contest's eighth minute. But there were other scoring attempts upstaged by misfortunes and the Canadians were lucky to escape the first period only trailing by two goals. Andre Boudreau and Roser Paymon had outstanding scoring chances but were either foiled by bad luck, inaccurate shooting or some great stops by Rogatian Vashon, the Canadians' goalkeeper. After that Ferguson-Taylor fight, the Canadians tied the score 2-2 on goals by J.C. Tremblay and Jacques Lemaire, and that's how the second period ended. Andre Boudreaux scored his 22nd goal, a dribbler, through uh, Rogi Vashon's pads uh, after about six minutes of the third period, and then referee Art Scove gave Dale Talon an interference penalty, and Mark Tardiff rifled a shot that goalie Charlie Hodge still hasn't seen on the power play to make the final, the Montreal Canadiens 3 and the Vancouver Canucks 3, and that in itself was a moral victory for Vancouver. 
One other game highlight we wanted to give you this week. Uh, there's a good reason for this as well as it being an interesting game. Uh, as, as I record this, I think I mentioned last week briefly that we lost one of the, uh, one of my all-time favorite hockey writers, Frank Orr, in the last uh, couple of weeks. Uh, he was not yet the lead hockey writer for the Toronto Star, but he was covering junior hockey, the odd NHL assignment, auto racing, tennis, a lot of sports, in fact, and he filled in with a lot of these special assignments. One of those special assignments, 50 years ago this week, Frank was sent to Buffalo to see just how good the Bruins were now that they had newly acquired former Maple Leaf Mike Walton playing a little more regularly as he was rounding into shape. Frank gave us this report on the Bruins-Sabres game from Memorial Auditorium in Buffalo. Frank writes, in comparison to the overwhelming brilliance of their play when they whipped the Maple Leafs in Toronto 10 days ago, the Bruins were well below that peak here in Buffalo last night. The Bruins were merely good in defeating the improving Sabres 6-3 before the usual Boston-attracted capacity crowd of 10,429 at Memorial Auditorium. And I was at that game. The game was actually sold out about five minutes after tickets went on sale three weeks ago. I was a member of a group who had season tickets, the Lowbanks Volunteer Fire Department, if you if you care. And we had purchased tickets that very first season. I'd mentioned that before. I was at university in London, but I made a special trip home when my dad told me that we had the tickets for that game. Frank went on to write that the Bruins were in their first slight slump of the National Hockey League season. Last week, they dropped a one-goal decision in both Vancouver and Los Angeles, following that impeccable display of excellence against the Leafs, in which they hammered them unmercilessly. They certainly didn't overwhelm the Sabres, despite the 6-3 score. In fact, the scoring chances were divided just about evenly, but a world of difference exists between the presentation of such opportunities to a Bruin and to a Sabre. Boston has scored 130 more goals than the Buffalo Sabres have in two less games so far this season, which does tend to indicate a superior finishing ability around the net. Derek Sanderson, Johnny McKenzie, Johnny Busick, Phil Esposito, Ken Hodge, and Bobby Orr, who represent a majority of vote on anyone's list of NHL superstars, had the Boston goals. Every time a Bruin scores, it seems he grabs a line in the record book. Esposito's goal was his 51st of the season, permitting him to join Chicago's Bobby Hull as the only National Hockey League players in history who have scored more then 50 in a season. And Orr's score, plus an assist, elevated his total to 101 points this year. And that is the first player to acquire more than 100 points in two consecutive National Hockey League seasons. Think about that, a defenseman. Punch Imlach had this to say. Punch, of course, is the Sabres general manager coach. Punch said, make one lousy little mistake, even when you have a manpower advantage, and they can pounce on it. Imlach went on to say on about four goals, the Sabres allowed one of their men to get loose, and it just killed them.
or wrote that the big difference, of course, between the Bruins and just about any other NHL team is their remarkable ability to control and maneuver the puck until a potential shot on goal is transformed into a clear-cut scoring chance, and that is the Bruins' secret to putting the biscuit in the basket. Four of the Boston goals were arranged by beautiful passing plays executed with ballet-like precision by a team that is supposed to stress bellicosity rather than finesse. The Bruins can do it both ways. Mackenzie's goal in particular was a gorgeous effort. Orr originated the quick relay inside the Sabre blue line with a pass to Busick who was cutting across in front of the Buffalo net. When Busick's fake forced Buffalo goalie Roger Crozier to commit himself, he then backpassed in front of the net and McKenzie, uh, cutting in on the other direction, just simply stabbed it home for the goal. Even though his team won, Boston coach Tom Johnson wasn't completely happy with the Boston performance. His comment after the game was, We seem to have fallen into a pattern where we get the lead and then we ease up. Johnson said part of it is that the, the Bruins hang back and stop their forechecking game, and that's the important part of what Boston does in every contest. Tom said, we've been having some defensive drills in practice to change things up. Tom says if they can't play well in the other team's zone late in the game, then they're going to have to play well in their own. Now you'll remember the one reason Frank Orr probably made the trip to Buffalo was because uh Leaf fans were interested in seeing how Mike Walton was doing with the Bruins. Walton is rounding into shape, but he ain't playing much. In the game against Boston that evening, Mike Walton played just three three shifts. And look how well the Bruins are doing without his contributions. When Mike Walton gets playing regularly... That's going to be a pretty potent offensive machine, wouldn't you think? Frank Orr finished his article by talking about the Sabres. He said, Buffalo's improvement since the start of the season is immense, and all of us who watch those games realize that. Punch and Black has built a respectable expansion team attack, and the Sabres' 150 goals rank with the output of six other NHL clubs, including the Detroit Red Wings, who have been around slightly longer in six months. The keys to the Buffalo offense are two young centers, the magnificent rookie Gilbert Perrault, who scored his 30th goal of the season last night, and Jerry Meehan, who had failed to score in an earlier Toronto trial. He has 15 in this season for Buffalo. The other Buffalo goals, by the way, in this game by Steve Atkinson and defenseman Tracy Pratt. That's a Frank Orr report from Buffalo on the Bruins and the Sabres and just a little bit of Frank's uh, fine writing as we pay uh, a small tribute to him on the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast. So that's our show this week, everyone. And what did we learn in this eventful week? Well, we learned a bit about Maple Leafs captain Dave Keon and how he's a leading contender for the Lady Bing Trophy and the leader of the Toronto Maple Leafs. We learned that Gordie Howe was sent to Florida by the Detroit Red Wings, but it became apparent as the week went on that all was not what it seemed when Gordie took this vacation. And we learned that the Boston Bruins, even when they don't play well, 
can still hang a severe beating on a team like the Buffalo Sabres. Well, next week we have another interesting session scheduled for you. And here's some of the stories we're working on. We get a possible peek at the future of television uh, broadcasting and hockey as the Vancouver Canucks will set up a closed-circuit local TV network and we'll have a few of the details we were able to find out about that. We will learn if and when Gordie Howe will return to the Detroit Red Wings. Stafford Smythe, president of the Maple Leafs, is told he's going to stand trial for tax evasion and the NHL trade deadline comes and passes without the hoopla and fanfare that we get 50 years later and with only a couple of relatively minor trades. The 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole and I can't thank him enough for all the hard work he puts into this. Andy is a true media professional and everything he does uh, is a very high quality. He's producing podcasts these days professionally. If you're interested, uh, get a hold of me. I'll put you in contact with Andy and he maybe can help set you up with something. The very popular Juno-nominated musical group, the Rural Alberta Advantage, provides our intro and exit music if you ever get a chance to see them live once things open up again don't miss the opportunity they put on a great show other musical pieces and sound effects in the podcast come from andy cole as well our research comes from files from the toronto star toronto globe and mail and of course all the fine publications found at newspapers Com. You can find us on Twitter at, at Hockey50Years and on Facebook under the 50 Years Ago in Hockey banner. We have a WordPress site, Hockey50YearsAgo.com, where we give you news on the podcast. And of course, you can download the podcast at your favorite podcast app. And now you're going to be able to get us on the Hockey Podcast Network at, as well. We're having a great time bringing you this 70-71 season. Uh, it's headed for a most exciting finish. One of the most exciting Stanley Cup uh, playoff uh, several rounds we're going to see in the next few years. And on that note, we will see you next time with more news from 50 years ago in hockey. When the